The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime. Hello and welcome to The Week in Art, I'm Ben Luke. This week in London, artists take on the febrile subject of monuments, the auction of a villa in Rome with Caravaggio's only ceiling painting, Flops, and the artist Michael Armitage on his fellow Kenyan painter, Sain Wadu. Louisa Buck visits the exhibition Testament at Goldsmith CCA in London, where 47 artists are tackling the subject of monuments and statues. She talks to the gallery's director, Sarah McCrory, and the artist, Adam Faramawi. In Rome, a villa with ceiling paintings by Caravaggio and Guercino, with a price tag of 471 million euros, failed to attract any bids. Anna Summers-Cox tells us why. And in this episode's Work of the Week, the artist Michael Armitage tells us about Sain Wadu's painting, Black Moses. Before all that, you can save 40% on a digital subscription to the art newspaper. That gives you unlimited access to the website and our app for iOS and Android, and up to 50% on the complete subscription, which means you get the newspaper as well as access to the website and app. Go to theartnewspaper.com, click on the subscribe link at the top left of the page, select your subscription, and enter the promo code digital sale for digital or print sale for complete. Do also subscribe to this podcast and our sister podcast, A Brush With, wherever you're listening, and give us a rating or review on Apple Podcasts, it helps others to find us. Now, in just the last two weeks, the Colston Four, who helped topple the 19th century statue of the slave trader Edward Colston in Bristol in 2020, were acquitted of all charges. A man attacked a public sculpture attached to the BBC's London HQ by the artist Eric Gill, who was exposed in the 1990s as a paedophile, and a towering equestrian statue of President Theodore Roosevelt outside New York City's American Museum of Natural History was dismantled because of its colonialist and racist connotations. These were just the latest events in the recent debate around statues, monuments and public art across the world. This week, Goldsmith CCA, part of the complex featuring the Goldsmiths Art School in South London, opened Testament, a show in which 47 artists have been invited to make proposals that ponder the idea of tearing down and erecting monuments and what it means to rethink them. Louisa Buck, our contemporary art correspondent, went to Goldsmiths to talk to Adam Faramawi, one of the artists in the show, and first to Sarah McCrory, the director of Goldsmiths CCA. The notion of a monument has become such a lightning rod for so many different issues, grievances, movements. I mean, never more so than in the last year when we're thinking of Edward Coulson, the toppling, and indeed the acquittal of the Coulson Four in Bristol, um, the recent chipping away at the Eric Gill sculpture outside the BBC by an angry Rights for Fathers protester, Confederate statues toppling, governments using all forms of monuments for their agendas. I mean, it really is a lightning rod. So it's a very timely moment, Sarah, to be having this exhibition. I mean, I imagine all these things were reverberating in your head when you thought about putting together Testament and inviting these 47 or so artists to take part. Yeah, I think that the monument somehow became symbolic or or central to lots of these conversations and became a way of thinking about how to digest people's feelings of belonging in this country or alienation. And also, you know, a lot of the conversations we have in institutions, whether it's universities or art institutions or just generally in our world, is how going forward, how do we treat people? And 
some of the conversations coming out of the treatment of these monuments were really, whilst there was kind of anger and fury and violence against, well, people and objects in in a lot of cases, these came from places of a lot of people feeling, of course, like they weren't being listened to, that that them personally and their families and their communities were being ignored, and not just presently but historically. So when we're having conversations on one hand about decolonizing institutions, but then on the other hand about Brexit and what that's doing to different kind of groups of people who are being made to go home, constantly on radio and TV, the monument was propping up, I mean, in both ways, symbolically as a monument for these conversations, but also as, you know, the treatment of those monuments and how artists could potentially work with those ideas just seemed to make some kind of sense in a moment when everything felt amplified. And you've got the most incredible range of work here. I mean, you've got 47 artists who were invited to make a proposal about what it meant to make a monument in 2022. They're all UK-based, and we've got drawings, films, performances, an inflatable pub, paintings. I mean, you name it. It's an extraordinarily diverse spectrum of artists um what were your kind of criteria for for choosing artists to take part um that's a pretty good question i mean it was initially um natasha Hoare, the curator at the time who's um now on maternity leave and then phoebe cripps and i all kind of just floated lots of ideas of artists who we've worked with before who we thought would tackle the idea in different ways some of the artists it's really their kind of modus operandi anyway you know if you talk about people like Jeremy who has Jeremy, a, Della, yeah. Jeremy Della who has a history of working in the public realm and working with um, these ideas so some artists made sense because of their work already um, and knowing that they'd come up with a great idea and then there was the flip side of that is not just wanting to ask the kind of artists who are good at making public art projects or proposals or working in the public realm. So we also invited filmmakers, we invited people whose practice is mainly painting. And we were um, looking here at an Alvaro Barrington. We are. An enormous concrete painting with symbols around the edge, bits of cardboard box, a beautiful poem by Tupac Shakur about the rose growing through the concrete. So you wouldn't think about him as, as a monument maker. Oh, I mean, I think a lot of uh, his previous sculptures and paintings they they include materials that that kind of nod towards permanence and weight and heft and also a lot of his work is really about you know his place in the world a lot of his works very are very personal and Tupac is a really important figure for him so a lot of the works as well touch upon Ideas not necessarily around monuments or statues, but around kind of class and race and inequality and other ideas that are kind of made real through these conversations. So throughout the show, I think there's no no work particularly that poses any answers. It's just conversations and, and questions about... Um, you know, how we think about history now. How, how do you rethink history? How do you consider and respect people who feel affronted and offended by the objects that exist in our society on a very direct level? But also those ideas, you know, they translate into our institutions, into our conversations about police or other people who, who are supposed to look after us. There's lots of very kind of contemporary news or, or contemporary issues that um, 
are bounced around within the galleries. I mean, making objects, but also taking existing objects and reclaiming them as monuments. I'm loving Jeremy Deller's A Monument to Money Laundering. This is just a text, but it <laughs> says, take any recently built skyscraper, high-rise, in the centre of London and rechristen it as a monument to money laundering. I yeah. mean, boof, that's a, a good gauntlet being laid down. Or Mark Wallinger's film that we're looking at as well, that yeah. charts the, 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 the mound at Marble Arch, the great big grassy mound that he points out is the only civic work made during the pandemic in London. Exactly, and he's so brilliantly kind of mapped that sculpture or that object or that monument by looking at what happens around it. And in many ways, you know, that's, that's part of the conversation we're having. If we look at historical monuments in existence you know actually the activity that happens around those speaker's objects, corner in this case yes. speaker's corner and it's you know of course if there's any place for a kind of diversity of literal voices it's speaker's corner so his film is a great kind of <laughs> testament to yeah that kind of diversity of conversation and voices and its relationship to a literal bad idea <laughs> she says questioningly Anti-monuments, monuments. I mean, the sense of Holly Hendry's vast sort of snake-like coils as sort of lumps of architecture that cut and thrust through the inside and outside of this actual building. Yeah, I mean, you know, again, there's quite a lot of symbolism across the whole exhibition and Holly is using this kind of recurring idea of the worm through the building and, of course, the worm takes the literal detritus and shit and turns it into something good. And one of the interesting things about proposing the show to lots of artists, I thought the responses would be more kind of negative or would be more around um, destruction or maybe more aggressive acts towards existing monuments and or ideas of, of statues and monuments. And, and actually a lot of them propose the, the opposite. They propose generosity or growth or you know conversations about positive gestures and change and I found that really interesting because I really I did think we would have more kind of melted down structures than we actually have it's not a kind of jolly romp of positivity by any means you know there's some really personal responses and some quite serious responses like Phila de Barlow's well, Phila de Barlow's absolutely I mean caught me because you've got this bound form these these two sort of trunk-like lumps of, of plaster or brick or whatever they are but tied up suffocated by this big black bag but the text that goes with it is so crucial because it's her account of watching a film with an Iranian student over a decade ago of, of a woman being stoned in Iran and just her responses to watching this and, and you have to look at the text yeah. and look at this together so in a way it's about sort of messing with the monument because I found the text actually it almost didn't even need the physical monument yeah. to I go mean, with it. The, the text is a really strong piece of writing and a recollection but it's also really interesting to think about how an image in your mind can also be a kind of monument you know that's obviously something that's lodged with Philida in her mind for like you say over a decade and yet still when asked to propose or to think about something for this show she returned to this um you know, this figure of a stoned woman wrapped, uh, her, her broken body wrapped in, in material and her shock at that and then the conversations around what it means to be watching something like that, what it means to be a voyeur, but also how 
if you look away, are you disrespecting that person's death? If you look, are you complicit? Yeah, exactly. And it's a really complicated work and and it's really beautiful and really heavy and really both physically heavy and kind of emotionally heavy. That monument to that moment is, it's a really strong work. It's a really moving one for me. So do you feel this show, in a way, I imagine you're as surprised when the proposals started coming in, as you say, they're they're, they're different in in many senses to to what you're expecting. So Mm -hmm. do you see it as a kind of vindication, if you like, of not of the power of the monument, but the power of art to bear witness, to give testament, as is the title, to, to, to the times in which we live? I think one of the things that's been really interesting about it is that I was surprised by what came in, and I was surprised at the kind of significance and the weight of a lot of the works. We really at one point thought we might have kind of 50 drawings or outlines or kind of Photoshop mock-ups of possible monuments, um, but we have a, a, a quite wild show, I think. And what I think is the, the outcome of it is that it's just raised many, many more questions, and every single work in the show is a, a kind of a, a starting point for investigating probably in many cases not even the idea of the monument but how an artist has approached something as a starting point for another conversation. Sarah thank you very much. You are very welcome. I'm now joined by one of the artists taking part in this show Adham Faramawi. Adam, you've made a proposal for a garden for parakeets. This is an interesting monument in a show that's got such a broad spectrum of different ideas around the monument, the monumental, what constitutes a monument, what should we preserve, should we actually be making monuments at all, whose decision? Why parakeets? Honestly, when Sarah McCrory asked me to be part of the show, I cocked my head and um, I was really suspicious because we've known each other for a little while and we've never worked together before and I thought, why me and why this? Which artist is it who would say, uh, yes, responding to public monuments or the idea of public monuments is the centre of my practice, you know? So I, I thought about it and I took some time to think about how I feel about monuments generally. Well, particularly, of course, in the last year when monuments have become this kind of lightning rod for so many other issues. I mean, perhaps one could argue they always were. But boy, oh boy, you know, from the Coulson statue to the felling of the Confederate statues to the recent chipping away at the Eric Gill sculpture on the BBC. I mean, everybody seems to be having a pop at monuments. And, of course, the government doing all this retain and explain strictures to museums. I mean, it's a free-for-all, almost a monumental free-for-all. Absolutely. And I have been quite public, actually, in in, um, saying that my feelings about monuments and public sculpture generally, because they're different things is that they should really serve the communities that they're, that, they're, they're, you know, that they're part of, that they're installed within. And, you know, me as a Londoner and someone who grew up and lives in London, I've always been suspicious of them. And the kinds of ideas and histories that they... Uh, and when I say they, I mean the figurative um, sculptures of mostly colonial and military figures uh, in central London. They don't speak to me. They're not for me. And they don't serve any of the communities that I'm part of. So I just thought, well, what is it that you would do? You know, what do I do with that? What, would, how, what kind of monument do I propose? I think that the way that I would do things is, is to, you know, make a space for people, a space to use. So I, I looked at the parakeets as a migrant, you know, as, as, uh, as 
a member of another species that I relate to in some way as a migrant myself. I mean, these are the green parakeets that over the past sort of decade have become a really kind of conspicuous presence in all the green spaces across London, really, and are a recent arrival and a very kind of prominent arrival. And so, in a way, it's interesting to use them as a kind of symbolic presence, I guess, for many other communities who've they, come They to work the as a metaphor. I mean, recent in that, they were introduced into London via colonial trade routes as a Victorian pet and only became uh, like a, a, a wild species, I think, in the 60s. So, yeah, they, they work as a useful metaphor and a way for me to ask questions about migrant status and how we feel about migration now. And I think it's interesting in your film the different kind of receptions to the parakeets. I mean, some people say that they're a threat to indigenous species, they're a pain to fruit farmers because they consume so many fruits. Other people think they're a wonderful, colourful addition to the capital's spaces. And you know, others, others just love the fact that you know, there is this protected species of birds that are kind of adding to the mix, all of which are kind of clunky metaphors that could be used to describe other non-avian populations. So I guess it's really important to understand that I'm using this story as a way to point at types of entanglement and complexity and to try to talk through the story of the parakeet to ask questions. You know, sometimes when you look really closely at another species, at a flower or a bird or, a, you know, whatever it is, it can denaturalise the way that we behave and it can make it easier to ask some of the really difficult questions. It was never an issue of me trying to equate ecological problems with social or economic problems. They're not the same thing. But one story can sometimes unlock the key to another. And also, so many monuments are, for better or for worse, about a sense of place. So I think it's interesting that you've taken this notion of creating a place in your proposal. I mean, there's something really lovely about the idea of a garden as a monument. But the issue for me was a move from or a reframing of what a monument can be. You know, once it's no longer understood as necessarily uh, a bronze representational statue, what can it become? If it can be a garden, then it can be a housing estate. It can be a rec centre. You know, it can be something that people can use. And in a situation where the government we live under is, is taking away money from, uh, from these kinds of resources, maybe it's useful for us to think about how the money that we spend on these objects could be repurposed or redistributed. And I think it's interesting that every artist who's taken part in this show has been asked to submit a text alongside their work. And your text, apart from the title of the piece, is a list of charities to which people can donate. Yeah, I mean, because the video is a story, and it's a story told in my voice, um, I thought it would be useful to use that text as a request to mobilise, as a way just to ask people to do something, not just to watch the story and take it passively but maybe we can do something together and all of the charities that are on that list are actually on the most part they're london-based uh, refugee solidarity charities so they're based in uh, lewisham or some of them are in northeast london some of them are in um, southwark so it's it's a way to extend our support out from this building into the local community which is exactly what i've been asking to do in, in the proposal Adam, thank you very much. Thank you.
Testament is at Goldsmith CCA in London until the 3rd of April. You can read more on the various stories around monuments and statues on the website or the app. And do also check out the many episodes of this podcast that consider various aspects of this topic. You can listen to the full archive wherever you're listening now. Coming up, the villa with a Caravaggio ceiling that failed to sell at auction, and Michael Armitage on Same Wadu. But first, here are a few of the top stories on our website this week. The Dutch Senate has approved the purchase of the Standard Bearer, a 1636 painting by Rembrandt. As Lee Cheshire writes, the government in the Netherlands will contribute 150 million euros, while 25 million euros will be paid by the Rembrandt Association and the Rijksmuseum. The final price was 10 million euros more than previously expected. Despite the vote in favour, many senators voiced their concerns about the purchase because the work will be bought from the Rothschild family via a trust located in the Cook Islands, whose holding company is in the tax haven St Vincent and the Grenadines according to The Guardian. Other senators questioned the timing of the acquisition during the pandemic and asked whether the authenticity of the work or its ownership could be assured. The culture minister Gunai Uslu said that due diligence had been done. British artist Tracy Emin is demanding that a neon work she gave to the UK's government art collection in 2011 be removed from 10 Downing Street over Prime Minister Boris Johnson's, quote, shameful behaviour, as Annie Shaw reports. Johnson was forced to admit to Parliament last week that he attended a bring-your-own-booze party in the Downing Street garden in May 2020, while the country was in lockdown, though he maintains he had not realised it was a social gathering. Emin is not retracting her work from the collection altogether, rather she suggests it could be hung elsewhere in a British embassy in another country, for instance. Emin voted for the former Conservative Prime Minister David Cameron in the 2010 UK election, and it was Cameron who commissioned the Neil. A sale of objects once owned by the freedom fighter and former president of South Africa, Nelson Mandela, has been called off after the South African Heritage Resources Agency told Guernsey's auction house that the items were potential national treasures and may require permits to leave South Africa. Arlan Ettinger, the president of the auction house, told the New York Post that many of the items were being sold directly by Mandela's family, which didn't apply for permits because they didn't know they had to. According to the German news site DW, Mandela's oldest daughter, Makaziwe Mandela Amur, approached the auction house to hold the sale in order to raise money for a garden and museum at Mandela's burial site. You can read these stories and much more on the website and the app. We'll be back after this. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. On 26th of January at Christie's London, discover Aubourg du Lac, an interior by Francois-Joseph Graff, an auction offering predominantly French decorative arts, furniture and paintings from a unique home on the shore of Lake Geneva. Meticulously assembled by Graff, the pieces in the sale were carefully sourced from renowned Parisian antique dealers, including works from highly regarded artists, designers and makers such as Sauvrezy, Lièvre, Hoffman and others. On view at King Street from the 20th to the 25th of January, highlights include a painting by Henri Lucidane, a group of furniture by Lièvre and Viado, an impressive collection of Art Nouveau ceramics and a suite of Burgundy Japan room panelling painted with exotic birds. Explore the sale on Christie's.com to discover a unique and luxurious interior curated by a renowned designer and aesthete. Welcome back. Now, in Rome this week, the auction of the Casino Ludovisi, with its outstanding wall paintings by Guercino and Caravaggio and ancient Roman sculptures, had attracted enormous attention. The price tag for the casino was 471 million euros, and offers should have started at 323 million euros, rising in increments of a million. 
But the deadline to register interest in the sale was an hour before midnight on the 17th of January and it became clear then that there were not going to be any bidders for one of Rome's most artistically spectacular buildings in the hands of the same family over four centuries. So what happened? I spoke to the founder of the art newspaper, Anna Summers-Cox, who's based in Turin, about the story. Anna, to begin with, what's a casino? (laughs) A casino in Italian is a brothel and a casino is a gambling establishment. But in the 16th century, a casino was a small villa on the outskirts of town, somewhere nice and green. So you come across these rather elegant little buildings which are called casinos. Okay, so in this case, the Villa Aurora is a building that was part of a grander complex, right? Well, actually, originally it was much smaller. It was built by Cardinal Francesco del Monte, who was Caravaggio's great patron. And it was really very small. And it's the core of this building, which is reasonably large. I think it's 2,000 square metres. But it was part of a much bigger complex with a big villa attached, and that's now the American embassy. And they sold off all the land in order to develop the Via Veneto, which we all know from La Dolce Vita. Indeed. So how famous is this villa in in Italy? Is it or, or in Rome? Obviously, there's so much in Rome. So how sort of renowned is it amongst the people of Rome and more widely? Well, it wasn't open to the public until extremely recently. It was very difficult to get into. But in the um, in the Romantic period, before they had got rid of their huge park around it, people went there to look at this thing in the middle of this this ravishing park laid out by Lenot, who did Versailles. And it got written about by Stendhal and other, you know, other Goethe, you know. They got somewhat forgotten because it was shut the whole time and also not always inhabited. And the person who's really brought it back to life is the current princess who married the prince in 2009, uh, uh, Miss Rita Carpenter from San Antonio, Texas, who not only made it habitable and lives in it, but actually opens it to the public three mornings a week. So, you know, hats off to her. Indeed. We'll come back to her because she's a sort of key player in this story. But obviously, let's talk about the art that's in it. So it's primarily famous now for the Caravaggios, but they didn't come to light actually until the 20th century, did they? Well, that's extraordinary, isn't it? Because Bellori, who wrote The Life of the Artists in 1672, specifically mentions it and says Caravaggio painted this ceiling painting, which is perpendicular. I mean, you're looking straight up at... Well, Pluto's bottom, um, (laughs) (laughs) um, but in order to demonstrate that he could really do dramatic drawing, because one of the criticisms that levelled against him was that he wasn't sort of artistic enough, that he could only draw if he had a sort of peasant woman in front of him. Mm -hmm. No, he said, I can do this too. Right, and that's it. so. Basically, there's this this extraordinary foreshortening that we see from beneath, effectively, and it's and it's a, a sort of mythological scene. Yes, well, mythological sort of. I mean, the figures are mythological. There's uh, Jove, who, as we all know, is the head of all the gods. Uh, there's Pluto, who is god of the underworld, and Neptune, who is god of the sea. Uh, but what they represent is much more than themselves. They represent a new theory about the universe that was put out by an alchemist, a Swiss alchemist in the late 15th century called Paracelsus, um, who believed in something called natural magic, which connected up the world with astrology. And he identified three more elements besides earth, air, fire and water, which were salt, 
mercury and sulphur. And that's what these three figures represent. And then in the middle is a great glowing circle, which is not the world, but is a kind of the cosmos with some of the astrological symbols on it. And in the little room that is under this, Cardinal Del Monte carried out alchemical experiments. And so he was a sort of patron of the young Caravaggio, effectively, was he? Yes, he's one who sort of basically picked him out out of the the gutter uh, and got him some really major commissions and gave him some major commissions himself. Now, as well as Caravaggio, in a way, there's a sort of subplot which is about the fame of Baroque painters in this as well, isn't there? Because there's an astonishing work by another great master of the Baroque period in there too, isn't there? Yes, after Francesco del Monte sold the casino to a member of the Ludovisi family um, who were coming up big in Rome because their uncle had just been made Pope, which was, you know, like winning the lottery. They wanted to have a really stonking um, ceiling painting in the entrance, and it's Aurora. Now, Aurora is the dawn, and she's driving her chariot, and as she drives, she's driving away um, the clouds of night. It's an incredibly beautiful painting. It's by Guercino, the Bolognese artist, and is considered his great, great masterpiece, and which is why the Casino Lodovisi, uh, other name, is the Villa Aurora. Indeed. And that also there are sculptures, right? So both ancient and of later periods. Mostly, mostly ancient. I mean, once upon a time, there was a huge collection of ancient sculptures, 340 of them. But the Italian state bought 180 of them for the Museo Altems, which you can now go and see it, a separate building uh, in the late 19th century. But I mean, in Rome, there are Roman statues standing around, you know, just like hat stands. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so let's talk about the ownership then. So who owns it now? Uh, it belonged, until he died in 2018, to the prince, Prince Boncompagni Ludovisi, uh, and therefore had been in the family for four centuries um, uninterruptedly. And uh, now there is a difficult dispute because uh, his widow is the Texan, Rita Carpenter, who's done such good things for it, and three sons by the first marriage. And it's really very hard to see how they can resolve it because by Italian law, an inheritance has to be divided up in fractions between the spouse and and the heirs. And I suppose they've done their calculations about what the rest of the estate is worth. And now the great question is, what is this worth? Um, And since it obviously can't be divided up physically, it's going to have to be sold. And that's how um, this auction has come about. So what's the value that's been placed on it? Or at least what was the value that was placed on it ahead of this auction that didn't quite happen? One wouldn't have started from this position if one was really planning to do it properly. Because it's a legal dispute, it's ended up in the hands of the tribunal, i.e. the court. And they normally sell uh, bankruptcy shops, you know, warehouses, um, motor cars. They hadn't the faintest idea what to do. So they, they went to an academic at Rome University, La Sapienza, and said, you know, value it for us. And he hadn't basically got a clue about anything to do with the market. He just said to himself, well, um, this is quite a pretty good house, so that's 45 million. He probably took some advice on that. And then he just arbitrarily invented the rest of the price. So he said the starting bids are going to have to be 323 million. Um, so deduct 45 million for the house and all the rest of that is the works of art. But it won't sell until it's 470, it's got to reach 471 million. It's an enormous sum of money. Given that, and uh, this is the big sort of um, snag, that you can't actually resell them except by reselling the whole building because you can't take them off the walls and sell them as a separate entity. 
Right. So exactly. So basically, the key thing here is that because you can't sell them on, they're of little value to certain kinds of collector. So you need a very particular kind of person who's going to take this on, keep it together and look after it, right? Yeah, who, who's going to enjoy lying on his or her sofa and looking up at, um, you know, the, the marvellousness of, of Caravaggio's foreshortened figures and, and the aurora. And it's quite demanding taking this on because this is a listed building, i.e. the state has said it's of national importance. Uh, with that comes a great deal of baggage. Um, the state uh, has the right to make regular inspections to see that, you know, the conditions are right. Um, you've got to open it to the public. And what's more, they, they've got the right to preempt the sale within 60 days of somebody buying it. So whoever bids for it isn't even actually certain that they're, they're going to have it. So it's pretty unattractive. So this auction house acting for the tribunal said that they sent out 20,000 pieces of information to, to the richest people of the world. Uh, they said, um, Bill Gates and the Sultan of Brunei. Well, I can't imagine the Sultan of Brunei having the faintest interest in buying this. And sure enough, not one single person registered interest in buying this remarkable, I mean, wonderful building. But you say it's a national monument. So is the state at all interested in buying it? Could the Italian state buy it? That's all a question of price, isn't it? You know, the state has a great deal to spend its money on at the moment. And, of course, there's shrieks of, of uh, uh, protest from, from the general public who say this is a great masterpiece, you know, it should be in public hands. But actually, it doesn't really need to be in public hands. The American princess has shown that you can have it in private hands, they will look after the building, they open it to the public, and, you know, frankly, what more do you want? But you've got to find somebody who's got that mentality. But isn't that also something which runs counter to sort of a lot of uh, attitudes in Italy towards cultural heritage? Yeah, the old communist adage, um, the private ownership of art is theft, is still somehow rooted in the minds of people, including young people. And so one sees wonderful buildings in Italy falling to pieces because they would rather that they remained neglected in public hands rather than got sold on to private owners who might look after them better. Right. So we've reached this point where, as you say, there were no bids. So what happens next? <laughs> well, this is where the whole thing becomes completely mad. Uh, by the law of, of the tribunal's auctions, it has to be offered again at a 20% reduction. And if that goes unsold, then uh, shortly afterwards they offered it another 20% reduction. So if you can imagine, if, if indeed the Sultan Brunei were interested, um, he would be sitting on his hands at the moment waiting for the house to fail to sell uh, numerous times, at which point the price would be much lower. And is there any sense, I mean, you know, obviously at some point it becomes more attractive to more people. So, it, so it's a guessing game between anybody who is interested, right? So as you say, they can keep going for, with each increment of 20%. But at some point, it does become affordable to more people, perhaps. But at the same time, you know, when, <laughs> at what point in the future does that happen? <laughs> you know, it, it, does it dwindle down to £10? And then I'll, I'll have it. Um, no, I, it, it, uh, there must come a point at which the state st- steps in. Uh, and also, presumably, the heirs will come to some sort of arrangement because it's not in their interest for this wonderful thing to be sold for Thruppen's Hapney, you know. But something like this hasn't really happened before. And it should not have been sold by the, the tribunal's auction house. They're just not prepared for it. Well, what a fascinating story. Anna, thank you for coming on and telling us about it. Oh, not at all. You can read Anna Summers-Cox reports on the Casino Ludovisi on the website or the app. 
And finally, it's time for the work of the week. The Kenyan-British artist Michael Armitage has helped found the Nairobi Contemporary Art Institute, which opened last week. Its first exhibition is dedicated to the Kenyan artist Sain Wadu, and Michael's chosen to talk about Wadu's painting Black Moses, made in 1993. Michael, before we talk about the specific work, tell us about the Nairobi Contemporary Art Institute. Nairobi Contemporary Arts Institute was founded in 2020, uh, by myself and our director, Ayako Bertoli. The premise of it was to create an institution that supported the growth and longevity of contemporary art in East Africa, really. We started by doing a group of off-site projects, exhibitions, working with other institutions around the country, doing some online programming and stuff like that, as we weren't able to open our space due to COVID in 2020. We've just opened this year, last week with our first show I Hope So by Sain Wadu. It's a retrospective of his work and it really is the beginning of our on-site programming that will go alongside our off-site programming. The idea of the institution was to provide a not-for-profit art space so that quite ambitious shows that don't have a commercial angle to them could, could be carried out and then alongside that we'll also be starting a postgraduate program Uh, that will begin sort of mid this year. And of course, this is part of a sort of long-term project, a long-cherished idea of yours, which is to shed greater light on East African artists in general, because, of course, as part of the House der Kunst show that you had and then which travelled to, in a sort of slightly smaller version, to the Royal Academy, there you had your own work, but also East African artists right next door, right? Yeah, so that was our first collaboration uh, working alongside institutions was the Mulia Kilinarojo section of... Haus der Kunst and, and the Royal Academy Paradise Edict show. Looking at the older generations and their generations that I, I kind of grew up going to their exhibitions, the first exhibitions I saw were of their work. And then growing up and becoming an artist myself and spending time here, I was struck by the fact that the younger generation of artists, younger than myself, that is, had never heard of a lot of these artists, let alone seen any of their work, because the institutional spaces that we had were either some of them were dying out and others were you know in turmoil and didn't show the work of these artists so I, I was a little bit as an artist I was kind of a bit shocked because I don't know where I would be without having my own place mapped out by the artists that came before me and th- this really was the beginning of wanting to show a trajectory of painting in particular and figurative painting the Mulia Kiri Narojo looks at work from the 1950s through to around 2000, through the eyes of seven different artists. And one of those artists is Sein Wadu, who we're going to talk about now. Now, he's, he's got an extraordinary biography, actually. Tell me something about Sein. Yeah, so Sein um, started his kind of elder life working as a, as a court clerk. He was a poet, he was an actor. And then when he was 30, he decided to pick up a brush and start painting. And, you know, it la- labelled as a bit of a pariah, people started calling him insane for wanting to be a painter. And the subversive element of Sane that is very obvious when you meet him and even more clear when you, when you look at his work became clear because he then took on the name Sane as, as a kind of rebuke for those who would call him insane. And the other interesting thing with him is his last name, Wadu, actually comes from the Kikuyu, as he's Kikuyu himself, Wandu, which means of people. Um, and so he, his name became the sane one of people, basically. 
Um, and and that, that's actually something that, that is, again, like uncanny throughout his work. His concerns are always of the people, how one is within people, within community, within society, politics, religion, the whole lot. But it's always of the people. And it's important to him, and in fact, he's done a lot of work around this area, that, that he's self-taught as an artist, isn't it? Absolutely. So at that time, the predominant kind of artists that were being shown had generally all been taught at Makerere or Kenyatta University. So there was really a sort of academy and way of doing things that was prominent. Wadu, you know, led by his his wife Eunice Wadu and working alongside another artist called Brush, um, they started the Ngecha Artist Collective and they really wanted to pitch themselves against the academic styles that came before. But they also stood up for artists' rights and trying to get um, more recognition for artists in Ngecha. And so they, they created what's called the Ngecha Artist Collective that really was a movement that began in the late 80s and early 90s. On the Royal Academy's website, in connection with your show, there's a very interesting film of Sane in his studio. And one of the things that really strikes me looking at that film is that he's got a tube of paint in one hand and he's got a palette knife in the other and he applies the paint to the surface directly from tube to palette knife to surface so it's not even mixed on a palette or on another surface it's it's so direct his painting style isn't it yeah absolutely and that really began to evolve after they started the collective and kind of their their both their language the the way he literally languaged the text that he has in his work he would continually try and subvert what came before spelling his name wrong sometimes writing letters backwards uh, and that that really carried into the painting language where instead of having what was quite um thinned down gouache paintings that he mainly did before he started to apply the paint much more crudely and directly using a palette knife almost to sculpt the impasto surfaces that he was he was building up. And that kind of philosophy of against the academy really runs through and really shifted how he made work. Um, and we're going to talk about Black Moses, in which that sort of impasto is so apparent, isn't it? Tell us about Black Moses. Yeah, so, so maybe um, I could just read a little um, clip from the extended notes next to the painting. You know, th- this was written by the curator of the show, Mukami Korea. And talking about the show, she says, quote, In this painting, Wadu references the biblical story of Moses taking the Israelites out of Egypt into Canaan. This serves as a reflection on the nature of political leadership in Kenya and its use of Christian religious ideology to promise change and a better future for its citizens. In Black Moses, the figure of the leader, the Godhead, sits above a mammoth of people seen to be in a state of distress. Some prostrate, many on their knees and with raised hands. The density of the figuration invokes the trite phrase, a sea of people. When placed into the biblical narrative of Moses, Black Moses in Wadu's case, the representation of the sea gains renewed significance, referencing the biblical journey out of Egypt and towards the promised land, and invoking the Hebrew etymology of Moses, meaning to draw out of water. Wadu subverts the image of the saviour and emancipation of suffering, with Moses' ability to move oceans, Wadu instead implies manipulation en masse, unquote. And f- for me, that's also like, particularly poignant with this painting where the central figure, who looks remarkably like our former president, Daniel Arup Moy, and also carries an Urungu, which was his symbol of power, that, that kind of play between someone that the people are either following or afraid of 
and his use of power and the way that people interact and the fact that he's also made up of the people, that he's, he's a product of the people as well, was really fascinating to me. Indeed. So t- tell us a bit more about the Moy era, because is it seen as um, a period of autocracy in Kenya? How, how, does, how is it perceived today in Kenya? You know, one, one of the maybe strongest memories for those who lived in those times was of a kind of regime of oppression, really. Um, human rights uh, violations. Also, Kenya at that time, you know, w- was under a lot of restrictions globally from from, you know, some of the global powers because of Moy's regime. And so it was much more kind of self-sufficient in a, in a sense. But Moy's regime was, you know, kind of synonymous with uh, police brutality and, um, you know, a stifled economy um, as well. On a kind of day-to-day basis, there was much more insecurity in the country. Um, having said that, in terms of regionally we were the most stable uh, country in our, our, our kind of part of the world so there, there are many contradictions in his in his regime and during his time but one of the areas that really suffered under the regime was the creative industries so there were kind of musical movements that were banned where all their LPs were burned from radio stations uh, generally in, in theatre, I remember watching a play by Gugi Wathiongo, who was also in exile and had been attacked by members of the the police forces, um, leading to him going into exile and nearly beaten and killed several times. I was watching a play of his when I was at school and, you know, one of the scenes was of the security forces reading letters as they were posted through through the post box, you know, against a kind of steam from a kettle. So, so that kind of that that kind of was the undercurrent of 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 those years that Moy was in power. And has Sain Wadu sort of explicitly said to what extent this painting Black Moses is about that era? I mean, as you say, it, the the likeness is sort of uncanny. So, but has he ever sort of talked about how significant it is in relation to that particular story, if you like? Wadu never explicitly says anything. I think he's, he's fantastically opaque, um, you know, and I, I think you just have to, to use your own imagination and powers of interpretation to take the painting to mean what it does to you. That's great. And, and, and tell me more about the, about the show, because his work appears to me, at least, to be enormously diverse in the sense that you can have animal paintings or flowers, but also, you know, sort of powerfully narrative pictures at the same time. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, when when tracking the evolution in styles and ways of thinking, um, we started with quite literally his first painting he ever made, um, his first oil painting, his first gouache, and and they they really begin with very close visual references to the work of painters like Elimo and Jao, um, who had taken on like a lot of Pan-African ideas, taking some of the things that the colonials had, had brought over and using them to interpret uh, indigenous stories or retelling of, for example, Christian stories, but using indigenous settings to do that, to re- really own, own some of that language. And, and Wadu starts off with, with a language that's quite close. Once he forms the collective um, with, with his wife Eunice and Brushes, that's when he really begins to evolve his style and things get crude and crazy very quickly. You know, you, you can go exactly like you say from 
paintings that really are quite beautiful and peaceful, like Ant Bear in the show, which is of an anteater where there's either glowworms or stars come down and kind of cover, cover the anteater, to paintings like Black Moses, which have kind of much more explicitly political ideas and themes that run through them. Um, and the language shifts to, to tell the story, really, whether it's, as you say, impasto applied directly on with a palette knife, or if it's much thinner layers that are built up um, over time. Um, re- really, he does and is able to shift through a huge number of languages and considerations uh, throughout the nearly 40 years of his painting career. And of course, like you're living evidence, aren't you, of saying what is legacy if you like uh, you know a, an artist sort of literally t- looking at this artist and taking on their ideas and I guess one of the, the aims of the institute is to create a whole new generation of artists who are going to look at this stuff and take it further is that right? Certainly we would love to provide somewhere that the younger generation and quite frankly you know the older generations too can can come back and reflect upon the work you know there were moments where I overheard you know artists in their 20s saying God, I've never seen something that was made before I was born, you know, to, to the work that was made in 84. I know to some that seems like quite recent work, but when that isn't available, that, that's some pretty ancient stuff, you know. Um, and, and also just for some of those younger artists to see that someone has been painting for 40 odd years and is still going, even if the attention has faded and has come back at previous times, they can see this kind of career evolving. So that was actually one of the other things we really wanted to do with the show is, as much as we could, introduce those who come to Sane's life and the kind of evolution of him as a person as well as an artist. Well, Michael, thank you so much for telling us about the Institute and about Sane. It's an absolute pleasure. Thanks so much for having me. Sane Waddow's retrospective, I hope so, is at the Nairobi Contemporary Art Institute until the 30th of March. The website is ncai254.com. And you can hear Michael talking about many other Kenyan artists and, of course, his own work on our sister podcast, A Brush With. That episode was first broadcast in August 2020, and you can find it wherever you're listening now. And that's all for this episode. We're on Twitter at Tan Audio and on Facebook and Instagram, of course. The Week in Art is produced by Julie Mihauska, Amy Dawson, Henrietta Benfel and David Clack. And David also does the editing and sound design. Thanks also to Daniela Hathaway and to this week's guests, Louisa, Sarah and Adam, Anna and Michael. And thank you for joining us. See you next week. Bye for now. The Week in Art is sponsored by Christie's. Visit christies.com to find out more about the world's leading auction house since 1766. Auction, private sales, online, art, anytime.